Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week, not necessarily the news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh60. This week, we have all four regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of ThisIsTrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the internet spam primer helping you get your inbox back. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig from MacMost.com, WPTipsAndHacks.com, and CleverMedia.com. I'm Leo Notenboom, lover of coffee, corgis, computers, and I'll throw in cameras for, the, for today. That'll make sense in a little while. I'm also the Leo behind, in front of, around, AskLeo.com. You know, Gary, if we're going to be listing all of our dot coms, I'm oh, gonna, we're not listing them. We're going to be we're going to be here a while, and it's I'm a one hour show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's a bad precedent. Let me bring up my list. I was actually shortening my intro because usually I say what each one is. Here, I just like listed all the all the stuff. I've got a lot of websites. My name is Kevin Savitz, and I have a lot of websites. Uh, you'll find many of them under the umbrella at freeprintable.net, which offers a lot of free printable documents and templates. And uh, another one is faxzero.com, which lets you send a fax to anywhere in the US or Canada for free or for $2. I'm not sure if you want to say how many websites you have, and I'm not sure you can say because you probably have lost count, but I'll throw the question out there. Order magnitude. Yeah. Um, I have more than 100, less than 150. Oh, I, this oh, wow. actually fewer than I thought. Yeah. Now, if you're talking domain names, I'm, I'm probably still in the 500s, although I've been dialing back. But, um, and yeah. just some of them point to another. Uh, yeah. I mean, because I, 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 when I have, I don't know, I, I set up legal, I don't know, I, what's, what's a good example? Sometimes I'll, I'll get, a website and it'll start on a, on a .net, like uh, for instance, cover letter examples.net. And then, you know, sometime later the .com is available. So I'll buy the .com, but redirect it to the site, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, a lot of similar domain names. Yeah. And I've got, you know, extra domains. Like I have newsbloopers.com and I've had that for years and years and years. And it just goes that this is true. Yeah. So I've got something like, 70 domains, I think it is, thereabouts. <clears throat> but um, you're right, only about, uh, I want to say 15 or 16 WordPress installs that I actually manage actively. Mm-hmm. Um, have you beaten out? You have more WordPress than that? Yeah, I have 20, I think, or maybe even 24. Wow, okay. I'm going to have to... All those, not all of them are mine. I mean, my wife has a few. And... Oh, well, if you want to start counting the ones to manage for other people, I'm up in that 20 range as well. Okay. Um, yeah, there's definitely a couple of, of websites that, I, uh, that I've taken on, and all of a sudden they got converted to WordPress because that's how I like to manage things. But yeah, um, definitely. I also have some of those, um, gosh, a combination of speculative domains, and vanity domains. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I own, for example, technologymonk.com, which redirects to Ask Leo. And it's just one of those things where, what a neat concept. Maybe I'll do something with it someday. Of course, that was years ago when I bought it and I haven't done anything with it yet. Um, I have askleo.guru because I thought that those bizarre top-level domain names were kind of interesting and I should have one. I also have leo.coffee. Uh, for, the, for the same same reason as well as personal branding, you know, um, it's great to be able to tell people to go to askleo.coffee. Yeah, I'm a big believer in, I mean, as a p- person who publishes websites, buying the domain name early, and if I end up not using it, fine. But if it's an interesting idea now, and I don't get to it for a few years, I, I would have rather spent whatever it is, $10, or, yeah, yeah, $10 times three or four years, then have some domain name speculator sitting on it and then want to sell it for a thousand or $10,000, you know, some ridiculous. You realize that's what happened to Ask Leo, right? Yeah. The, yeah. Reason, I, uh, the reason I own Ask Leo is um, .com specifically. Uh, I did originally, originally I started with ask-leo.com. And I was looking at a, a domain squatter for all that time. And he wanted a bucket load of money. And um, eventually, 
I should have just cut my losses and paid the bucket load of money, but I ended up paying him a bucket load of money to get it. And uh, I'm glad I did. But yeah, it's one of those things where timing is everything. And I tend to agree. I mean, it's better to, to have the domain and lose interest in the idea than the other way around. Uh, I definitely, the way I deal with my domain renewals is every January when the first one comes up, I renew all, I review and renew all of the domains that are expiring that year um, in one go. And uh, it's definitely a review process. And there are definitely domains where I say, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I do the same thing. Yeah. I, uh, I think I'm going to let buyleoatesla.com expire. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you know, there's, there's no need for that domain. You gave up and bought your own. I, yeah, it just wasn't happening fast enough. The donation, <laughs> donations weren't pouring in as quickly as they needed to. Um, so, you know, there's that kind of stuff happening as well. Uh, sure. I'm, it's interesting. So how do you guys feel about things like um, .info domains these days? I think they suck. They suck. Do you, like, I own a couple. And I, I purchased a couple originally because I wanted to be able to say something that didn't have a dash in it in, uh, in my podcasts. So I could tell people to go to askleo.info. Oh, I, I don't like .infos, but I hate anything with a dash. I mean, okay, <laughs> okay. With, with a fiery hatred. Apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't like those other domains. I, don't tr- I try not to use anything but .coms. But every once in a while, I see somebody use a .io or something, and it, it looks really cool. And I think, why don't I have more? Why don't I have a .io somewhere or something? Uh, but then when I try to do it, I I don't know. I always check it out at the end. And then I, and then of course, a lot of the stuff. Sometimes I forget that you know you could do your own you know like something .macmost.com or something you know .com. And it's like, well, why don't? I, why am I creating a new domain? And I could just create a site that's like that and subdomain. Keep, yeah. keep building my same brand instead of starting another brand. You know, I used to do a lot of that. And I decided that for SEO kind of reasons, uh, I guess, uh, it was better to funnel all the traffic to a common do- domain. So I used to do things like answercast.askleo.com and books.askleo.com and you know a couple of other things like that. I just say, you know what? No, this doesn't make any sense. Just do it all on askleo.com um, so that, you know, Google's always pointing there. People are always pointing there. Uh, oh, sure. Presumably, I, it's a better better. You track. guys talked me into, when I started the WP Tips and Hacks site, to also getting WP Wombat. Do you remember? <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> and, true. And what I did, and I can't believe that, uh-huh. and this, I'm probably going to undo this, is I started using WP Wombat. I love Wombats. I mean, that's why it came up. But I started using WP Wombat as my example site. So, I'll, so WP Wombat may change all the time as I throw example posts and do example things there, and then I use those in videos and stuff. But it occurred to me, thinking, well, that was a good idea, but wait a minute, why didn't I just do example.wptipsandhacks.com? or something similar, you know, um, that would have made more sense doing a subdomain. I, I, I guess it de- change that. guess it depends on what you're trying to instruct people on. I have um, an unreal semi-related site, biz.askleo.com, which is about setting up um, a presence for businesses. And it goes through the entire process of why you need a website and how you should set one up and setting up WordPress and buying your domain and all that kind of stuff. And I definitely have an example site Literally, askleoonbusiness.com. It is an example site. But the reason I chose that is because I wanted it to be as close as what my readers would be experiencing, right? So they're going to have their own domain, something.com or whatever. And not having to throw in the added confusion of a subdomain, probably a good thing in that case. I think it's probably a good case in in, in Gary's situation too for his yeah. example site and i can I like wombat making it fun is also never a bad thing yeah it's true but i mean i could do if i like for a while i had an example uh site about castles and i was just showing people how to do it and then i wiped that away and put it at a different type of example site there but i could have done castles.wptipsandhacks.com and then left it there and then said hey every time i want to show people this type of example, I'll just go to my castle site and I'll create a new one called travel.wptipsnacks.com. It's an yep. example travel site. 
So, and then of course, what happens is one of them will end up taking off, but because of some weird t- tweet by some celebrity, and then the entire <laughs> WP tips and hacks inexplicably becomes a site about castles or something. There you go. <laughs> it makes no sense whatsoever. One thing I did years ago is I bought some really some bizarre domains. I bought um, reallybigbookstore.com, some <laughs> randomservice.com, randomisp.com, that kind of stuff. And the reason I did that is because a lot of instructional sites, and Gary, you probably run into this as well, they talk about, you know, here's a domain, and we'll use example.com. Why use somebody else's domain? You know somebody's going to click on it. You know somebody's going to go there. (laughs) So now if you actually go to those domains, you at least get a parking page that talks about me as opposed to, hey, this is example.com. It's just an example site. There's nothing really here. Yeah. You know, I should do, I should do that kind of thing because I, there are lots of sites that would, I'd be able to throw together quickly, you know, as an example, like uh, whenever I see on Nextdoor or Reddit, uh, somebody post about, I found a cat or I found a dog. They always seem to get something wrong. I'll keep it till this weekend. Then I'll take it to the vet to get the chip checked. It's like, no, don't keep it till this weekend. Take it now or have somebody else take it now. Some, you know, little kid is crying because their dog is lost. Um, and so I thought I should do a site, like what to do if you find a lost dog.com or something like that. <laughs> and then instead of actually having to, you know, respond to that, I could just post the link. Um, but that would make a great like 20 page WordPress site. And I could use it as an example. And if sure. somebody actually goes to it for legitimate reasons, then it's a legitimate site. So. Yeah. Alrighty then. And all that because Kevin owns like hundreds of domains. Yeah, we haven't even finished with your intro, Kevin. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Kevin Savitz. I'm owner of uh, it's, it's 481 domain names. I logged in. Uh, oh, you checked? Oh, that's not 500. Jeez. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pare down. And here I thought it was going to be four digits to begin with. So. Well, sorry to disappoint. Yeah, and some of them definitely need to get, we'll get pared down this year. And some of them yeah, they're just these ideas that I liked and uh, I still like. And, you know, am I, am I ever going to create, you know, uh, what, I don't remember, this might not be exactly, but freeguitarchordchart.com? I don't know, but it's the kind of thing that I do, you know, and create useful reference sites like that and throw AdSense on them. And yeah, maybe or not, but I'm willing to, to gamble a few dollars to, that I'll do it this year or next year. Oh, yeah, Cap- captainsoftware.com. That's another one I own. See, no, not that one. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> a few years ago, I bought, um, I, I don't remember how I did this. I did some sort of search to f- try to just find um, five letter domain names that were available, five and six letter domain names because um, they were kind of running out. And so I have a couple of those that I'm just sort of sitting on. Now I'm the, I'm the bad guy squatter on that and just yep. kind of, you know. Yeah, but those but, could turn into money. Yeah. yeah, they could. I mean, they haven't yet, but I might have had this for almost a decade now, like cchco.com. What is it? I don't know, but it could. I could use it or I could sell it. I don't know, but I try, I try not to be in the squatting business. Well, I have a real weird squatty one too that um, a friend of mine that – was in a similar business. He, he wrote books about crazy new stuff. And he actually used this as true as, as one of his sources to find something fun to, to write about. And uh, he had realwacky.com. Mm-hmm. And he finally decided, you know, books weren't paying enough, so he started to do other things. And he let the domain go. And I no. Thought, no, don't do that. So I grabbed it. So. Sure. If he wants it back, I'm happy to give it to him. <laughs> but in the meantime, it p- points to my site. So any of his old readers that, you know, and I'll bet you it's in some of his books. Um, and if they go to, you know, type it in, I don't want them to go to a porn site. I want them to go to my site. Right. Yeah. For anybody who, who's listening who, who actually owns a domain or two that they're thinking of letting lapse, don't. Nope. I mean, it'll do turn something. into porn. Yeah, it, it will actually. That happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. but um, you know, it's happened turn, to me. Yeah. See, even if you even if you like get ten or twenty bucks for it on the secondary market, that's you know great. You sold, you know, make a couple of bucks off of it. Chances are you might be able to get more. But um, yeah, don't let it lapse. Just don't. 
I've put all my, uh, a bunch of them, maybe like 10 at, you know, what SEDO.com or net or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, I tried that too. It didn't work. Yeah. Well, one of the things I did that was interesting was they had a really crappy, um, like way that you park it at their site. And then there's some ads and uh, I didn't like any of that at all. So I, fi- what did I do? I figured out a way to like have it for sale there. And then there's just, I just put up a page saying it's for sale and then it links to their sale page or maybe it just links to their sale page. So it skips that whole spammy kind of thing. Um, and I put about 10 there and I did sell one. I sold one last year for a few hundred dollars. So which has probably paid for me having, you know, the, paying the $8 a year or whatever for renewing the rest of them. Right. But, um, but you know, that one sold some of those others. I, I mean, I'm offering them at good prices. So I wouldn't be surprised if I continue to sell one here and there. Uh, and, uh, and one I sold, you know, every time I sell a domain, whether it's that or somebody approaches me and, you know, wants one for whatever reason, I keep tabs on them and I'm amazed at how many sales, in one case, somebody paid me a lot of money. Never anything at that site. Never been used. It just blows my mind. I mean, it's some company that had some plans, and the plans, I guess, fell through. And they still have the site, and they still have some crap up there just that's like there's something coming soon. And I'm like, what? God, you, pay, you guys paid me a lot of money not to do anything with the site for the last eight years. I like being paid a lot of money to not do things. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I strive it's for the that. dream. Yeah. <laughs> so, Randy, would, would you like to, to uh, tell us about uh, UEFI, apparently? Well, you know, I have my continuing saga of moving away from Windows 7. And uh, I actually, you know, got out my DVD drive to load up Windows 10 on my computer and happened to notice a big red sticker on the uh, envelope for the Windows 10 update that actually came with my computer way back in uh, 2016. Please ensure that the BIOS setting is set to UEFI mode prior to installing. For more information, please visit this URL. And I popped over uh, and, and I was reading this while my computer was doing a full backup so I could, uh, you know, not lose anything. And you. so I went to that page and it says, and when you switch to this, it completely changes your, how your hard disk is uh, accessed and you're going to lose everything. You have to reinstall everything too. It's like, okay, I wasn't ready to do that. So I have uh, hit another rock wall and, and have not, Upgraded to Windows 10 yet? That's my confession. Father, UEFI, forgive me. UEFI is an interesting one. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that I did with my new computer, which once again you're soaking in it, um, is that I wanted to back it up in its pristine condition. Right. In other words, I wanted to back it up before Windows setup had even run. And as you know, if you turn the machine on for the first time, what's the first thing it does? It boots into Windows Setup so you can claim it as your own. Uh, the approach that I took was to figure out how to make it boot from something else and have that something else be, like I think I used Macrium Reflect to back it up. But <clears throat> it's it comes UF, UEFI. It's, it's, that's just the way it's configured. And yes, there was a lot of trial and error, I'll call it, uh, figuring out, not just the UEFI setting, but also how to go about getting it to boot from the thing I wanted it to boot from. And it took a few a few attempts to make that work uh, reliably. And obviously, I was able to get there, and I was able to undo it and get it to, you know, to boot back into the pre-installed Windows 10. But, um, yeah, just changing the UEFI setting won't actually change anything on the disk. But if you then install an operating system, for example, then yes, it's going to be installed differently than uh, it would be had it been with UEFI. And just to back up a little bit, Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, which is basically the replacement for BIOS. And what's interesting about that is that Dell refers to, at least in the documentation I have, Dell refers to it as BIOS. Right. Keep talking about it as BIOS, even though very technically, it's not BIOS, it's UEFI. 
but it's what everybody's used to, right? BIOS is that thing that runs when you turn your computer on. So uh, why further confuse people with terminology? Exactly. So that's what I'm dealing with. And I'm, I've got to get all my software together so I can, can uh, reinstall it. I mean, I should have that pretty available anyway, just in case my hard drive dies or something like that. But I don't. And uh, I mean, I could get it together if I had to drop everything and do it. But when I'm trying to work it in among right. other things, it's going to take a while. I feel your pain. So there you go. Kevin. I, I just want people to pronounce it UF, UEFI or something. That'd be more fun. Yeah, well, it would yeah. be. Yeah. UEFI. How's, how's your UEFI? <laughs> Did you get the new, new UEFI this week? <laughs> I spent all day with UEFI just getting it going. Uh, let's see. I had last week for, for absolutely no reason for not for a project or I, I don't know why I got this into my head, but I, I wanted to, I wondered if it would be possible to render uh, an SVG file which is, what does that stand for? Uh, scalable vector graphics. I knew that. Scalable vector <laughs> graphic file uh, on my old Atari 8-bit computer, which came out, you know, in 1979. Um, and, it's, and I did some research, like somebody must have done this. So I Googled around to see if anybody had, had done this. And, and I, to my knowledge that no one had, had tried this. So I started writing a, a, a basic program to see if I could render SVG graphics on this old computer. And it started off, I'm just like, I'm just going to, super simple. Can I open a text file and, and um, look for the word, you know, rectangle, and can I parse out the numbers and, and render out a rectangle? And uh, I did it, like, super easy. And then, you know, it just became like, oh, well, this basic has a, circle command and SVG has circles. So let's try that. Right. So, um, and it turned into just like one interesting project after another, like just little problems to solve. And I've been like super into it. And so what started off as my plan was to be just like a, a little two hour project, just something fun to do. I've been working on this for a week and now um, I can totally render not to, not all the commands but i can render pretty reliably svg files on my uh atari computer um and i thought it was going to be about rendering graphics and that like but most of the problems actually have been around parsing the svg are basically text files or h you know uh, um xml files um that describe an image and, but it can be in a lot of kind of different formats and, and it's not always like, there's not always a, a space bef between numbers. Sometimes there's like negative, a, a minus sign or a, or a period because the space is implied. So basically I'm trying to just do this interesting parsing of XML files and basic, which was not designed for that. Um, anyway, so I've been having fun with that. I, uploaded a, a YouTube video of it, of it working, um, rendering a, a flag, uh, the, the flag of the Cook Islands. I just downloaded a bunch of you know, public domain SVG flag images. Um, it takes uh, uh, 82 seconds to render <laughs> <laughs> this one SVG file. It's going to be my question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now this is something, you know, you can, whatever you, you, you click the link on, on your computer, your modern computer and open it. I mean, it, the, it would, it would render in just no time, a fraction of a second. It would just like be there and watching it render on the Atari is just so painfully slow. It's funny. So I've been having fun with this and I'm happy when I add a feature and that works and I'm happy when it crashes spectacularly and drawing crazy jagged lines all over the screen. That makes me happy too. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. That's, that's pretty that's cool. Been my, my project. I love it. I had a very, very early vector graphics program called Arts and Letters. It ran on Gem. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really neat. I mean, I was just boggled that I could zoom in, you know, infinitely and, and still have it be clear. So um, it was it was kind of sad that they, they chose Gem because 
you know, Jim got blown out of the water by windows, but uh, it was a, it was a neat program back in the XT days. I remember the Apple II had a, it was, they were called sprites and there, it was, it was like this it was like drawing little vector shapes mm-hmm. and it was so slow that it was unusable. Like it, it looked like the kind of thing you would use in a game or in a graphics app, but it was too slow for that. So I used it for a few things way back in high school. And then I was like, well, this is so slow. How are games using this? And the, and the thing was games weren't games were using assembly code to render graphics in other ways. Um, but it was interesting that somebody went, I don't know if it was Waz himself or somebody went into a lot of trouble to build this whole sprite architecture into the Apple II, And uh, it just really didn't seem to be used very much. Right. Yeah. Um, it was, I, I did that too on my Apple IIc back in the day, and but yeah, basically it was it was a it was a vector graphics sort of thing where you kind of yeah. said you know it was kind of x y coordinates, and you could you could de- define a shape, and you could I believe rotate you could definitely position the shape, and I believe rotate it, but oh, it was agonizingly slow. Yeah, you couldn't um, animate. You could draw one thing, like you could draw this cook flag, like you're saying, cook on this mm-hmm. flag, but then if you tried to actually move it across the screen, you know, forget it. Yeah. Right. So it was just one of yet another thing of just like how how far we've come and how how amazing uh, computers were and how they're amazingly different now. Oh, yeah, so. we continue to move forward. I mean, I I have a lot of JavaScript games. I call them HTML5 games because people don't like JavaScript stories. But hmm. you know, a lot of these <laughs> games, uh, I made them. Well, first when I made the games in Flash, I made them in Flash because Java, doing it in JavaScript was laughable. It was way too slow. But the Browser wars meant that they were all competing and trying to make JavaScript faster. And uh, eventually, they came fast enough so I could make slow versions of some of my games. And then move forward a few years to today, and those slow versions are now extremely fast. And the fact that I was like, I spent all this time optimizing the code to get them to run just fast enough to be acceptable is like, now, well, I don't have to do any of that because now they run super fast on, you know, a 2018, 2019 computer with a modern browser. It's funny. One of the uh, one of the Facebook groups I'm on is a bunch of Microsoft old timers, and uh, just today, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the members dug up an old document that we were given uh, shortly after starting. That was basically tips and tricks for the 8088. Mm-hmm. Simple things like, and this was assembly language programming that we were doing at the time. And these were simple things like, well, did you know it's faster to XOR a register with itself than it is to try and move the register or move, you know, move a zero into the register. It's both faster and smaller. <laughs> the document was just filled with tricks like that. Tricks that, oh, those youngsters today, they don't know anything about. Right? Just, <laughs> there's, well, there's so many I, things that we used to do to make things run fast that simply don't apply anymore. I remember programming something on a Timex Sinclair. Because I, <laughs> I, I picked one up for like 10 bucks, right? They were really, you know, after a while yeah. they got cheap. And I found out or heard, and then I tested myself, that using number one, like A equals one, is a certain speed. Saying A equals pi divided by pi was faster. Because <laughs> one was like a string that then had to be interpreted into like a floating point number or whatever. And pi was already, there was already a hard-coded thing of this is the value for pi. So we did, and division was fast. So pi divided by pi gave you the value one in your variable faster than A equals one. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Anyway, yeah. All right, Gary, you're next. Oh, well, I just wanted to quickly mention the iCloud course that I talked about last week that's up now, and there's a coupon good through the end of this week, so we'll have that in the show notes. Anyway. How, how much of a coupon is it? It's, uh, I, well, the list price is 40 bucks, and it's a uh, coupon to get it for 12 Oh, so that's a pretty good coupon. 70% coupon. off, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I try to launch and offer a special deal, so. But only good till the end of the week. Yeah, the, the March first, I think that'll end, and then um, it'll go to. It'll, I'll still have a discount at my site. I always offer some sort of discount, but it won't be that low. All right. So I wanted to talk about AMP pages, accelerated mobile pages that Google is really pushing. 
And before we were talk, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about these. And uh, and Gary, you kind of said, "I don't know how you do AMP pages," but and then you told how you did it. Um, mm -hmm. And I just didn't really want to interrupt you to say, "I don't have any freaking AMP pages." <laughs> I. So, uh, I, I mean, how important do you think they are for somebody with a website to have AMP pages? Well, nobody likes them, first of all, at least from the at the side of the developer. I was at a WordPress meetup uh, a month ago, and the uh, the guy running it asked about AMP pages, and like everybody let it out a groan. Um, I mean, basically, for those that don't know, it's like a like another version of your page, super optimized for mobile. So just on the phone, instead of seeing like all the nav bars and ads and like, you know, sidebar items and stuff at the bottom, it's just like, here's the title and a picture and some text and maybe a couple other little things. Um, really simple. You can glance. It's more of a glance at it than a sit and read it kind of thing. So Google, uh, you know, a couple of years ago said, hey, everybody do AMP pages and we'll favor those for mobile searches. So you have an AMP page for um, somebody searches, there's your regular page for desktop and there's your AMP page. If they're on a mobile phone, we'll show them the AMP page so they could see the content easier. And they also kind of promised, you know, nudge, nudge, we'll, we'll feature pages more, you know, consistently if they're AMP pages. In other words, make an AMP page or you might lose your search ranking. So people did them for that. Now, WordPress, what most people do is... They just put one of the AMP page plugins and turn it on and you're done and you walk away. And now you've got for every post that has a regular page, you have an AMP version of that page as well. Um, and that's fine, except Google is really picky about AMP pages and they will send you little messages through their search console saying, oh, this AMP page has there's some tiny little detail about it that even though it's obvious what you're trying to do, we're going to be persnickety and say that it's not working. And they will send you several of these a week and really bug the hell out of you. Um, so the, what I did was instead of using the default WordPress thing, I created my own because these are very simple pages. So I was like, the, 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 I don't need to do more in my script than actually like display the image, display some text, display the title. And you know, a few other things. It should be pretty simple, and it is. And the great thing is that when Google says there's a problem, that I know exactly where to fix it. Whereas if it was the WordPress plugin, I couldn't fix it because it's not my plugin. If I fixed it, I would then be forking off my own version of that plugin. Um, so I feel I have more control. And I've seen great results. I was just looking at about 1,500 of my pages uh, are, uh, have AMP pages that are indexed in Google. So that's mostly video pages, but a lot of my forum pages as well. Uh, and Google is, according to Google, showing a lot of those to people doing searches on their mobile phones. So Now, do they only see it because they're searching and Google basically yeah. serves that up to them? Or if they come to your site with on an iPhone, so they go yeah. to macmost.com, are they going to get the regular site or are they going to get the AMP page? They'll get the regular site so, and my site's responsive. So it was one of my problems with AMP to begin with was like, hey, I've made my site responsive, which Google also told us to do. So my pages already look good on mobile. <laughs> so right. I'd rather them look at my nice responsive page, which looks good on iPhone, iPad, and desktop because it resizes elements to, to look different on different devices. I'd rather them look at my regular website. And if they go to macmost.com and then go to a page, they're seeing the regular page with responsive design to look good on their iPhone. If they go and they search Google for something and they get a result that's one of my pages, chances are it's the AMP page. And when they tap on it, they will be taken to the AMP page version. I do have a link uh, that on there to say go to the regular um, site and then you can see the regular responsive uh, version, which is important if you want to leave a comment or something like that, then that's all in the regular version. So the AMP is kind of like a just quick dump of what's here. Description, video, title, you know, a few comments, and, you know, that's basically it. I think I put the transcript down below just so you could, if you, if you came there to read instead of to watch the video, you can read the transcript. 
So, well, and of course, I've I've got a responsive design too, and I'm sure Leo does, and and probably uh, I don't know. Do you need uh, responsive design for free printables? I don't know. Yeah, I think you need it everywhere in order to I mean at least to some extent. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, that my deal is that I definitely have seen an increase in traffic, I think, from having AMP pages, which a lot of people say they're not seeing, right? Oh, we did it, and it was a pain, and now we're not seeing any extra traffic. I, I am seeing some traffic from it. I still don't like it. I still wish I didn't have to do it, and I would have gotten this tra- same traffic by just having my responsive design. Um, does it just feel like another edict from Google saying thou shalt do this? Then it just like you're almost required to do their so bidding, right? I, yeah. I understand there's one additional thing that Google claims that they can use this for, and that is caching. And I think that that's something that um, we also kind of resist because Google apparently is allowed to, when they click or tap on the link to your AMP page, that may come from Google's cache and not your site which means that you have lost the information that this page was being visited. Except that since I'm using Google's analytics, maybe they are, maybe I'm getting, I still have that information. I, I certainly see, I can certainly see my stats show, you know, this AMP page was loaded, you know, 300 times, that kind of thing. Interesting. So, yeah, maybe if I was using my own stats. Of course, if I was using advertising on those pages, I would probably lose. I don't even know if you can really use advertising on AMP pages because I imagine the ads do not fit right. uh, like the type of content. But that's okay since MacMost is ad-free. It, it really doesn't. And of course, there. any links off of that page mm-hmm. are going to be to your responsive site. I'm yes. assuming that Google's out of the picture at that point, right? They're viewing this AMP page in their browser and then they're just tapping on links. Absolutely. Yep. Well, so. you, you mentioned the, the warnings you get from Google. Even though I don't have any AMP pages, I get those warnings too. I, Google sends me an email that says, one or two pages on your multi-thousand page site has a mobile problem. It's like, well, that's not likely. Oh, you actually get, they're, they're separate warnings. So I still get the mobile ones. Yeah, it says and mobile, it doesn't AMP say ones. Right, so, the, you, yeah. so if you do AMP, you'll now get twice as many of those. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, you know, I just think it's, it's completely unlikely that there's a problem on one page of a templated site of thousands of pages. So I just go into Google and I say, yeah, I fixed it. And they say, well, we're going to validate that. And then a couple of days later, I get an email saying, oh, yeah, you fixed it. Thanks. I mean, yeah, and that's, that's, that's great. But the assumption that there wouldn't be a, an error on a, just one page of a templated site, um, hell, my experience with your site, Randy, um, is actually the opposite. We have definitely run into situations where well, something sure specific about the, about the content on that page. Right. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, it's character encoding. But you know how much I love that. But the problem is that, you know, it certainly can happen. I think what you're doing is the correct first response, right? Ignore it. Make it, you know, tell them it's fixed and it'll go away. But if they then come back to you with that exact same page, then, yeah, it's time to take a deeper look. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I find that some of the most common things I get will be like a page from 2008 and it says the image is not like optimal for mobile. Like it's too big of an image or too small of an image or something like that. And it's like, I'm not going to go back to a 2008 post that's had like two views in the last year and, <laughs> For and, 10 and years. create a new image, right? You know, or re-render the image. It's like, that's fine. Just you don't show that to people in search results. I don't care. Right. But I, I mean, but uh, I have many feelings. Google, <laughs> Google's stupid. They, and they, they do stupid stuff like this all the time. And, I get alerts from them saying, like, I might have mentioned this before, that my uh, they're not going to serve up ads on on my site, adultcoloringpages.com, because it's adult content. It's pictures of flowers to color in, you know. It's just like, and then again, it's the same thing. They'll pick like one, like, oh, this carnation, that's that's naughty. <laughs> it's it's not. It's, it's it's a daisy or whatever, you know. They, and the other thousand, right, right. The other two hundred pages to color are, are fine but it's just this one you know it, and and you gotta go in there and you gotta say it you know i fixed the problem and they go okay you know and it, for that particular problem 
they have a, a, a you can only they say i don't know if this is true but there's a, a, a tick down number of you can only do do this uh, uh, you know a, a hundred times or something and, and then after that they, they're just not going to allow you to they say they won't allow you to to claim that you fixed a problem it's like you keep finding these non-problems i'm gonna you know so I could I could top all of this. We want to hear the the worst Google. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So I have uh, so some of my apps. You know, all my apps are on iOS. I've got some apps on Android too in the Google Play Store. So I ha- and all my games are really casual games. So they're rated you know E for everyone. You know, the lowest thing. You know, you're, just, you're playing a matching game or solitaire or whatever. I got a thing for one of my games saying we've and, and and they take it out of the store right away. Like when you get the email, it's like this has been removed from the store. Here's why. You know, you don't have any any other recourse. Unlike Apple, which actually sometimes goes back and forth. They and they said because it inclu- this game, you say it's for kids and everyone, and yet it includes adult content. What's the adult content? And a an advertisement that is shows too much skin. Let me guess. Google put that ad in it, there. It's Google's. Yeah. So I'm using Google's AdMob network, and I have it checked off to not show adult ads, not show ads that are inappropriate for children, all that stuff. So Google's ad network at some point let an ad slip through that was you know whatever somebody complained about it because that's the only way they really find out is if they somebody hit the button and complained uh, about it and they reacted by taking my thing down i'm like it's your ad network you're the guys that made the mistake and you've taken my app out and i like there's no recourse there's like the i fixed the problem kind of thing so i hit like i went in and i think i took out like a couple of other categories of things i'm like well maybe maybe video game ads maybe is it i don't know i took that out and i said it fixed the problem and then the game's back in the store and it's like oh god but that feels so stupid wrong i want to talk to somebody Mm -hmm. and have them say oh it's that was our fault and you don't have to worry about it and your game's back in the store or maybe don't take my game out of the store in the first place just ask me first i don't know yeah i had a very Similar thing with with Google Ads. Uh, they'll I'll get a thing saying that my site is encouraging accidental clicks on the ads. And I go in there, and there's an ad that's just like all arrows going like, "Click here, ah, you know, no." And it's of course it's a Google ad, and and I hate those ads. I hate I I do whatever I can to get rid of them, but they let them through, and then they try to punish me for having this terrible arrow filled green click. Now, you know, download. That's an ad, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I had the same thing. That's what I was starting to say is Google was um, dinging me for doing things like having um, strategically covered nudity. It's like, well, does that mean clothes? (laughs) And, you know, they were, they were, and I write about news stories. I do news commentary. And I sometimes have words in there that, they don't like like orgasm, you know, my God, how could you, how could you talk about that? It's like, it's a newspaper article. I'm commenting on it. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, they've got all these ads that were, they were putting on my site that are overtly sexual and, you know, barely covered boobs, all this kind of stuff. And I finally said enough. And I took all of their ads off my site. So now I have an ad-free site because, you know, it's like, I'm not going to play this game anymore. Mm. And I, I actually have a page on my site. I'll, I'll link to it in the show page. Of the kinds of ads they were showing on my site while complaining that I, would, I was talking about, quote-unquote, adult topics that were in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I, I think the title of this show is going to be Google is Stupid and, do, and They Do Stupid Stuff. <laughs> Excellent. All true. And there go our rankings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but DuckDuckGo is going to, we're going to go way up in, in, in their, their rankings. Yeah. For the five people who use that, that search engine. All right, we, the title should be DuckDuckGone. <laughs> who wanted to talk about folding phones? Well, yeah. So we had, we had some news this week. Um, 
because uh, oh, one company was it was it Samsung or was it the other? There's, Samsung. There's, Samsung. Yeah, Samsung. they came out with a two, or a preview of their two thousand dollar folding phone. There's another company that also has a preview out there, one that's even more expensive. And a lot of people think it's like the next big thing in oh, phones is, you know, because the advantage is you can have a screen that's double the size. So it's almost a, a tablet in your pocket rather than a phone in your pocket. And the Samsung, I think it's a Samsung one, actually has a screen on the outside, a small screen. Yeah. And then you open up, open it up, and there's a big screen on the inside that covers most of the area. The other one is one that folds where the screen's on the outside. So you could basically access just the screen with it folded and then unfold it and have the entire surface there. Um, the folding's not perfect, I hear. It's, you know, the, the, where it's folded, there is a little bit of either line, a line or a distortion. I think they the call it a, a crease. Crease, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I think is fine. I, actually, I think, I think our eyes grow really accustomed to little things like that, and I don't think it really matters. Um, you know, I think you could even well, do... Because, yeah, people have totally gotten over the notch at the top of their iPhones. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but I mean, I think you watch, you know, sometimes you walk into a place and they have like nine TVs on the wall that are forming one television. And it's amazing how little the lines, the tic-tac-toe board lines on that nine TV array really affect it. You know, after like a few first few seconds, you're watching whatever it is that you were watching and it's not a big deal. Um, people like having bigger, you know, I, I like having a tablet and the phone feels small. And having one device instead of two devices, being able to say, I don't need an iPad and an iPhone. I can just have a foldable iPhone at some point um, would be nice. Uh, the $2,000 price tag is another thing people are talking about. Oh, everybody was complaining about, you know, last year or the year before about Apple's $1,000 phone. And now, you know, there's a two going to be a $2,000 phone out there. This is why I think it's going to fail. But go yeah, ahead. but I think there's, it's a niche. It, I, I think the high end, uh, you know, uh, user is fine with that. The high end user is not that concerned about price. And it's not because the high end user has a lot of money to burn. It's because the high end user uses that as a tool a lot. I, I run into the same thing with Max, right? When I, I, there are people that are like, oh, God, a new MacBook's going to cost me 1400 bucks, and that's a little out of my budget. Can I buy like one that's three years old? You know, they're trying, how do we get this under $1,000? And then there's people that use their computers to make a living and don't think twice about spending four grand on a Mac Pro because that's how, that's what I use all day. It's my tool. That's what I make money with, you know? And so suddenly it's a, different budget category you know i'm getting that amount of money worth out of it i i know tons of people that use their phones that it would be a waste of money for them to spend two thousand dollars on a phone right they're just texting checking an app a couple times and maybe doing a phone call or two a day why would they spend more than just like a 500 dollars phone, phone on that yeah but if you're using your phone for a lot you know, if you're shooting video and doing photography and you're staying in touch with your office all day and you're using apps to get various things done and you see the value in it, you know, it, it, it's got to be tough to be a manufacturer of hardware because you, you know that there's people that see great value in your in high-end products and you want to make stuff for them. But then you know that there's going to be people that aren't getting as much value out, out of it and are just going to complain about the price. You know, $2,000 for a foldable uh, for, a, phone, for a telephone, no that's, way. That's ridiculous. Well, guess what? It's not for you. You know, that's the thing. It's but, like, but 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 eventually it will be for you. The other maybe. truism of this industry is that what was two thousand dollars today is going to be a thousand dollars in a couple of years. Is going to be five hundred dollars in a couple of years after that. This is more than anything, I think, proof of technology that it is actually coming up with a mass market foldable phone. Yeah, well, there's that too. And and there are two different branches. I mean, like you could say that, you know, like uh, looking at Mac laptops, they haven't gotten any cheaper, right? If anything, they've gotten more expensive. But, and phones, you know, the iPhone's gotten more expensive. But other technologies have gone down in price, like digital cameras, for instance. Um, or they get a lot better for the same price. A lot right. better. For the, so you have, you have different branches. Will the foldable phone, all, it, it may always be a high-end 
you know, product, or it could end up being the standard in phones and a lot cheaper in the future. We don't know which. Um, so I'm sure the manufacturers want it to become the standard, especially the ones that make the parts. Any phone is foldable if you want it hard enough. <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> a good point that's <laughs> a good point yeah that's pretty funny yeah i i you know we years ago people talked about the idea of having you know a phone being the brain of your computer and being able to you know its smallest incarnation is in your pocket taking it with you and then you could also then attach it to a larger screen you know, that you have in your, you know, backpack for a larger screen experience and then attach it to, uh, you know, three screens and a keyboard and a mouse on your desktop. But the, the actual storage and CPU and all that are in that one device. And that's never happened. You know, it seems like a good idea. But now I'm looking at my desk here and I see uh, an iPhone, an iPad, a MacBook and a Mac Pro. And they all have their own CPUs and their own, uh, storage. Um, the cloud makes them all kind of connected, but you know, I'm, re I'm I have th four CPUs and I can only use one of them at a time. It's funny because one of the exercises I went through with my, the purchase of my, my laptop was to reduce the number of CPUs. I mean, mm. literally I have fewer boxes now than I did at the end of last year, just because like you said, you can only use one at a time. So why not have that one be as much of your world as it can be? So as I stand here in my little, <clears throat> my little video studio, um, I have my laptop and I have my phone and that's it. So to move on to make sure that my introduction about being a lover of coffee, corgis, computers, and cameras. I was trying to make a liar out of you by delaying things. So we I was trying to give you a segue. I, I I managed my own segue. Thank you. Okay. Um, I ran across this really fascinating video um, a couple of days ago. It's published on a site called F Stoppers. Now, a lot of you may not know. I'm also I've I've been a, a an amateur photographer for years. But he's a Nikon guy, so don't listen to him. I'm an I'm a Nikon guy, so. I, if everything, everything matters. Um, I used to be an Olympus guy. My, in fact, somewhere in my office, I still have, I think, my old Olympus OM-1, mm -hmm. which was my 35-millimeter camera that I used back in, in high school when I did the whole darkroom thing and you know, sure. nice. for the, for the uh, yearbook and all that stuff. Anyway, um, digital cameras are fascinating. And one of the ways that they're fascinating is that they are mimicking, in a lot of ways, the, 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 the concepts that are being carried forward from film. Now, things like exposure makes sense. It's how long you expose either your film or your sensor. Things like aperture makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's how wide open the iris of your lens is to how much light will actually make it through to expose on your film or your, um, your digital um, sensor. CCD. ISO, on the other hand, is really, really weird. Ultimately, and the video that I, that I uh, ran across is an individual who is saying that essentially ISO is completely bogus. It's in, in the old days with thing. film, I, ISO was basically how sensitive the film was to light. Exactly. Exactly. You know, a number with the higher ISO was much more sensitive, so it would need less exposure for it to get the same image. Right. But and the sensitivity of the charge coupled device is fixed. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, the trade off at the, um, on the film side was that higher ISO, more sensitive, got you grainier pictures. Mm -hmm. They weren't as crisp as the lower ISOs would be. So uh, that would be part of your decision-making process before deciding what role of film to put into your camera. Uh, you would choose, you would figure out what kind of pictures you were about to take and whether you needed a high ISO, fast film, or lower ISO, sharper film. As Randy pointed out, these, these devices in our cameras, be they phones or be they Nikons or even Canons, they're fixed. They just... They take in light, they turn light into numbers, and then stuff happens. Mm -hmm. 
As it turns out, the ISO setting on your camera is ultimately nothing more than a math problem. When your camera takes the data from the sensor, it applies a multiplier to it. And it applies a multiplier that's higher if your ISO setting is higher. And it applies a multiplier that's lower if your ISO setting is lower. But it's the same data. It's the same image. It's the same bits that actually come off of the sensor. So that was really, really interesting to me. And first thing I did, of course, was think about, okay, how do I take pictures? What, how does this affect what I do? And the short answer is it makes me a lot less guilty about like playing with the exposure in something like Lightroom or Photoshop because I shoot in RAW. And what RAW does is rather than saving the interpreted values of these colors after the multiplication, they actually save the data that came off of the sensor, the actual numbers that came off the sensors, so you can adjust the heck out of it later. And so I've been shooting in RAW forever, and I've always been amazed at how much I can recover from what looks like a black photo by changing, quote-unquote, the exposure after the fact in my editing program. And it still turns out to be a really good program or a really good picture. Mm -hmm. Yes, sure enough, if you have less light, your pictures will show up grainier. It's not really grain, but it's... It's essentially noise. the same thing. It's digital noise is what it is because what you're doing is you're multiplying these small numbers, these very dark numbers by a large number. And of course there's going to be less accuracy. If you have more light hitting the sensor, the numbers that are coming off the sensor are much higher and the numbers you need to multiply them to make them visible are much smaller. So you end up with less, more greater accuracy in terms of the amount of light that's been recorded. So I've often wondered, Leo, mm -hmm. um, Back when I shot film, I mean, I, I understood how that worked pretty well. And if you shot something in, in a dark area or with, with very high ISO film, you would get grain. And I got that. And I understood why it was kind of the reasons were chemical as far as I was concerned. And then with digital cameras, you also get grain at high ISO and low light. And, and I, I never really, I still don't think I understand why. And it sounds like you're, you're saying that it's for real reasons, but completely different reasons that just happens to have the same effect in the same situations. Essentially, yeah. As I understand it, I mean, the, the, the light that's being recorded, it's an approximation. It's an, it, it depends on how, how sensitive that sensor is. But ultimately, it's an approximation. It could be off by, I don't know, however you want to measure your light, but it could be off by, say, one or two. When you have to multiply that by a very large number to get it visible, then any error also gets magnified. And of course, you know, the pixel next to it may be more accurate. The pixel next to that may be less accurate. The net result is that it starts looking like noise. It starts looking like the same kind of thing. It starts looking like digital noise instead of grain. Um, and yeah, it's just, like I said, it, it, so the, the, the two, my two takeaways from this were, one, yes, I'm shooting in RAW. I'm always shooting in RAW. That's one of the, the big debates among a lot of digital camera buffs is should they be shooting in RAW or not? And the answer, at least for, for higher-end cameras like my, my Nikons and your Canons, is, yeah, shoot with RAW because you've got a lot more flexibility on the back end right. to actually recover some really, really good photos that if you were shooting in JPEG, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get. You, you used to maybe not want to shoot in RAW because the images were so much bigger, but just storage is cheap now, just so right. cheap. And, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Terabyte SD cards, come on. Yeah. yeah, that actually was one of the stories that's not going to make it this week for time, but we'll probably talk about it next week or sometime soon. But yeah, there's terabytes by, terabyte micro SD cards. There's just no reason not to throw a lot of disk space into your camera, of all things, and no reason not to be able to deal with a lot of disk space or a lot of storage space on your laptop or on your online storage or wherever it is you're putting these things. So, um, so I have a question. Sure. How this relates. So I've, I use my camera sometimes to take photos of the stars at night and I have to shoot those as far as I know at like 1600 or 3200 ISO right um, else I just I don't get 
anything. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, I like the idea of saying, oh, I can just shoot everything and, you know, you know, something, you know, 200 ISO or whatever, and then figure it out. But so the, the sensor and the camera is recording the same thing, no matter what Yeah. your ISO setting is one of the many factors into deciding who decides how long to leave the shutter open so that the sensor gets enough light to do its thing. But I am, but I am manually doing that when I do the star photos, I'm actually mm -hmm. saying I want 15 seconds. So in a case like that, if you were to shoot it at ISO say 100 instead of ISO, what were you saying? 3,200 or something? 3,200. Yeah. Um, Again, the sensor would read the same thing. The raw data, as I understand it, that's captured would be exactly the same. The multiplier that's applied by the camera to produce an image would, of course, be different. But you can apply that same multiplier in post using Lightroom or Photoshop or whatever other tool you want. I don't know. So you're saying if I took 15-second exposure at 100 ISO. That's the theory. I I. I'm pretty sure no. <laughs> I'm, and I'm pretty sure yes, I actually am. Really? Pretty, You're shooting it raw. Shooting yeah, raw. Yeah, raw. I'm talking about, yeah, of course, when I'm taking a, a photo of stars, I'm doing raw. Um, I'm pretty sure no, because I'm pretty sure that I've not maybe tried 100, but that I've done like, okay, let me shoot one off at 400, 800, 1600, 3200. And no. they all look different because you're not doing any post-processing on them. Yeah, but I If you I take am. the dark That's one. That's all take, I'm doing is post-processing. I mean, when I... Take, take yeah. the black one, yeah. right? And, and crank up the exposure in Lightroom or Photoshop, whichever one you use. And what I'm struggling with is that um, that exposure slider, at least in Photoshop, has a limit. So you then have to start playing some other games to get the exposure up. But um, it's, it's still, so assuming everything else is equal, right? The length of the exposure, the f-stop you use, then, um, you know, and the focus and the, you know, all the other characteristics of a photo, the ISO is kind of immaterial. You can recover it in post. Hmm. Try it. Let, let us know. I, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to look through my star photos and try to find some of those where at least I've gone down. I probably don't have any 100 ISOs, but I may have some 400, 800s that I've tried to take yep. and then see what happens when I crank. I'm pretty sure I've tried that, and that's exactly why I took those photos. I did do one not that long ago of the, uh, um, of the moon because I think, well, didn't we have one of those super blue harvest wolf random moons <laughs> the other day? Yeah. Um, and um, the internet, those, those only happen once every 5,000 years. Right, that one, except there'll be another one in three months. Sure. The, um, uh, I had the opposite, where the moon was grossly overexposed. And uh, just because, you know, the light sensors averaging and so forth. I cranked down the exposure, and it was awesome. It recovered a beautiful picture of the moon. Mm. Um, and I was shocked, because in film, that would not have happened right? In film, those bits were just blown out. Uh, whereas in digital, it did the right thing. And I've thrown away a lot of moon photographs because of that. And I, I could have saved them probably. Possibly, possibly. So that's where my, I'm a digital pack rat. I think you guys know that. Um, I think that um, I save all of my pictures, even the bad ones, which is one of the reasons I have a terabyte of photos. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I can go back and, and recover all sorts of random things based on that as long as I was shooting in RAW at the time. What I found interesting is that my um, Pixel, my phone, will apparently also shoot in RAW. And I need to do some more playing with that. To yeah, see. a lot of phones will, and most people don't know that. Yeah, and I, I need to find out. What I noticed, at least in my initial attempts, is that the image size was smaller. In other words, the actual number of megapixels was smaller in the RAW photo which surprised me. So I need to do some more playing with that. But it's, it's something that, uh, especially after this little revelation, um, I might want, to, uh, might want to look in more deeply. Because that's a good little camera too. The phone cameras these days are just awesome for a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah, I just wish they, uh, the only thing they're missing is, is the optical zoom. 
I, I've had this bald eagle uh, camping out on a tree near my house. I've seen twice now walking the dog and, you know, way up there at the top of the tree. I've never seen a bald eagle walking a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Flying up. Smoking what they're smoking in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have really, our, our bald eagles here have pets. Yeah. Most of them have cats, <laughs> but some of them have dogs. Um, but anyway, uh, so I haven't been able to great get a great photo because I've just had my phone with me and I can only zoom in so far optically. And of course I stuck a little a pocket point and shoot that has a zoom on it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they did that, that acted as Eagle deterrent yes. and the Eagle has not been seen anywhere because it knows I have a zoom, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was, you know, incredibly interesting and, and really challenging one of the, the commonly held beliefs among digital photographers and uh, something worth, uh, worth thinking about and, and even playing with. Nice. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh60. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast. We would appreciate your rating the podcast in whatever app you use and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here. See you here again next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.